0: It's our first bonus episode. This is so exciting. Our interview with David Gardner ran a bit long because we were enjoying ourselves so much, but we didn't want to deprive you. So here it is in its entirety. After the interview, if you want to learn even more about David Gardner and how to build a portfolio of stocks picked by him and his team, then you want to head to supernovaradio.fool.com. You'll learn how to sign up for Supernova, which is David's service, which is designed to help you invest better. And there's also a ton of great free content, including David's five cornerstone stocks for 2016. Motley Fool co founder David Gardner is really good at investing. It's true. But he's a humble guy, so I have to brag for him. The stock recommendations he's made over the last 20 years through our Stock Advisor newsletter have delivered average returns of 267% as of this taping. That's just crushing the market's 47% over the same time period. So How does he do it? Well, he's got a knack for finding those disruptive companies that change the way we live. Companies like Netflix, which is up more than 5,000% since he first recommended it, and Priceline, which is up more than 4,000%. These are crazy numbers. He's joining us today to talk about what the future looks like and where he's investing. Is it all flying cars and colonizing the moon? And what exactly is the best way to invest in the imminent robotic uprising? Let's find out. David, thanks for joining us.
1: It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. On air. I, I'm happy to say that I see you both around Full HQ, and you're just as fun uh, off the air as you are on the air. But thank you so much for Motley Full Answers and for all that you've done over the last year plus Aww, for thanks. a lot of people who are turning on and switching on to the idea that maybe taking some control, sometimes some control back of their financial lives, will indeed more than repay itself going forward. So thanks. Yeah. Aww.
0: If oh, you're always nice going to say nice stuff like that, we're going to have you back more often. Every day. Every day. <laughs> Here's our moment of David Gardner saying how great we are. Go. Uh, so, like I said, today we're going to talk about the future, and I was thinking about how people thought the future was going to be back in the '50s and '60s. And so, one thing I did—I looked into was um, back in 1964, for the World's Fair, um, sci-fi author Isaac Asimov wrote a piece for the New York Times with his predictions for 2014. And while we haven't colonized the moon, he did get a few things right. So I wanted to like call out some things that were some predictions he made and maybe not so great. So, I'd
1: love to hear them. I love these these things. The people who were thinking about the future uh, fifty years ahead of time, so smart so often. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What? And Tell so what, me. well so what's interesting is actually he kinda dialed back a few things. So he was a bit more like in, in the sixties, people were just going crazy for technology and the Jetsons was on TV and they had these wild dreams and he actually dialed it back a little bit and which made it more more accurate. So first one, cars. Mm-hmm he predicted that we would have self-driving cars, Uh, although he also thought that they would likely hover above the ground. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I'll give him him points for that, self-driving cars. Robots. He predicted that robots wouldn't be common nor very good in 2014. Which I thought was interesting because at the time everyone was thinking that our whole lives would be run by robots, and
2: we'd work 20 hours a week because robots would be doing all the jobs.
0: Yes, and that yeah. basically our lives would be and leisure, leisure, and just basically herding robots and telling robots <laughs> what to do. Does for either us?
1: of you have a robot in your life yet?
0: Does our BB-8 count? <laughs> Sure, <laughs> our little toy BB-8. I, I don't know. He talks, right? He talks. Yeah. He, do, he does. He just doesn't serve a purpose, right? But
1: but neither the Southwicks nor the Brocamps have deployed a Roomba, for example. No. no.
2: Okay. Yeah. No.
0: There's got to be other. Details. We haven't done it
1: either. But but it, I mean, it's it's been a fairly successful consumer. Um, Product. Sure. But yeah, yeah, they're out there for some of us.
0: All right. And the last one I wanted to point out was online education. He predicted that classrooms would be held through closed circuit TV. So basically, the idea of a computer. But he also predicted that high school students will be taught how to use a computer and they will all be fluent in all of the computer languages. Partially right. Partially right. I have a vision that for Hannah, when she is in high school, she will, instead of taking Spanish, she will take. A computer language class, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, I thought that was cool because he he was he was pretty right. Um, you know, I personally am excited about flying cars and all of that in the future. But, um, David, what what do you, what do you think about? Like, oh, sorry, I don't know how exactly to phrase this because I don't want to be like the future talk. <laughs>
1: right. Well, I mean, let me just say this: that one of the best ways to predict the future is to invent it. As as has often been said, and I, there, there's a great Arthur Clarke who is, who is an author as well, like Asimov. Um, I think if you go on YouTube and just Google Arthur Clarke, I'm going to say uh, this is made up, spontaneous here, so no fact checking. Okay. this is Somewhere future. somewhere in the early 1960s, around the same period, he did a BBC kind of a 10 minute. What what I see of the future, and I think you can watch it on YouTube. Today. It's pretty remarkable. One of the things that he was talking about at, back then were satellites and how you know this will make it so that you no longer have to go to work every day. And part of it was that Clark helped invent, I think, the satellite. Like oh. he was one of the inventors. So when you're actually developing that stuff, it enables you certainly to make. Much better calls than people who are disconnected from it or kind of just guessing as, quote, futurists, end quote. So um, that's why I like Elon Musk a lot because Elon Musk, while he is not technically the inventor for much of what he's working on, he is so um, inured to that and he's so embedded in key technological trends that these are really valuable people when they talk about where the world is headed. So, right,
0: right. Go so to yeah. the moon. I'll make a rocket myself. That's why it. So not? the big, the big
1: trick, Allison, is that you just need to invent, and then you can really make awesome predictions.
0: Well, I'm, I'm not a very good inventor. Neither so am I. That's why we're doing this
1: podcast. That's why we're doing this right? podcast.
0: So how do you? Because, because a lot of people have made predictions that were pretty awful too. Um, how do you, when you're looking at technology, kind of separate? This is this is kind of crazy stuff. This is Jetson stuff that's never going to happen. Versus, you know what? I think this actually has some legs, and this really is the way the future.
1: Um, so, I, I don't think it's that easy to do anymore, and that's really my primary point. Um, because I think this is an important point that maybe not everybody shares this perspective. So, if this adds value, I'll just say briefly that the the ability to predict where things are headed has been narrowing over the course of time dramatically. Like 3000 years ago in ancient Egypt, you or I would have made a good prediction about where the world was headed in the next 100 years or so. We'd say our grandkids or great-grandkids, they'll probably be farming and <laughs> irrigation will be important and the Nile will want that to overrun its banks and you would have made a good call. But as you fast forward through time and uh, I grew up in the 1970s and I would say back then you could have made about a about a 20 to 25 year prediction decently. That's why, for people who are doing it 50 years ahead of time, in the 1960s. That's really impressive to me. By the time we reached 19, I'm going to say 93, and here's a specific reason why, because there was an AT&T campaign in 1993, which you can watch on YouTube. And this one's definitely there, and I highly recommend it. Go Google 1993 AT&T ads. They were saying things like, "How would you like to drive across the country without a map? You will, and AT&T will bring you there." Uh, and it was a series of ads where they were looking at life 10 years ahead of time, and literally within about 10 years, 1993 to 2003, GPS systems were in cars right. and ubiquitous. At, so You go back and watch those ads, it's hilarious because they totally nailed it. Of course, what's hilarious is, AT&T didn't bring us any of those things. <laughs> they, they, they had Bell Labs, they had people who could see it, but they literally didn't create things like um, yeah GPS. Um, so I would say the, the window had narrowed to 10 years. I would say today it's more like three to five years now so if you think about that and the implications of that you're seeing that it's increasingly difficult specifically to know or say with confidence what the world will be like 5 years from today it's very it's much harder than it ever has been in, in the course of human history so that i just think that's a profound point to recognize for me the investment implications as somebody who's trying to pick stocks within this is don't think about the trends so much or specific products. Ask yourself, who are the people that I want to be invested in? Uh, you mentioned, um, was it the cent, oh, uh, the World's Fair? What was it that you were quoting from? Um, this was from
0: around 1964's World
1: Fair. Yeah, it was the World Fair. So I, I was reading a book recently about the 1876 Centennial Exhibition, which was kind of the same thing. It was 100 years after the founding of America, and Alexander Graham Bell was there in a very small um, room. Think of like. Consumer Electronics Show today, where there's like thousands of yards and lots of rooms. everywhere. it was kind of like that back then in 1876. By the way, the Statue of Liberty's hand—that was all that was completed, and it was there, about 20 <laughs> feet tall. Just the hand was on, uh, but Alexander Graham Bell was there, um, being largely ignored, and he had the telephone, and he was showing showing off to people. Um, so I, I I'm not even sure really where I'm going with that, other than to say that it was a lot easier back then to kind of see where the world was headed, but. The 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 answer is invest in Alexander Graham Bell, invest in Elon Musk, find the people, Reed Hastings, um, Jeff Bezos, find the people who truly are creating the future. That's a much more, to me, a sustainable way to invest successfully than to try to guess whether Roomba 4 is going to start to um, I don't know, go autonomous and, um, and start take taking over. over your house. Ah!
2: <laughs> we talk a lot at The Molly Fool about buy-and-hold investing, being a long-term investor. If things change fast and it's getting faster, how does that change that investing mindset if you have a company that has come up with a certain technology, but management changes, the technology could be obsolete? Do you think differently in terms of how long you can hold on to a stock?
1: It's, it's profound, Robert. I, I do think this is, I'm glad we're having this conversation. I don't have firm answers. Um, I would say that I continue to believe that buying to hold. Is the best way to invest. It it does mean that maybe you're not chasing the latest thing, uh, unless that thing truly has huge buy-in. So when Facebook came public, um, we did recommend it shortly after the IPO because at the time it was considered a failed IPO and Facebook was kind of. But I mean, you know, they were on their way to a billion users. So you're not. It's a lot safer when you find those kinds of situations, even though Facebook was considered very risky at the time that we recommended it, five years ago or so. Um, So I I think that making sure that you're investing in companies that have real heft, real consumer buy-in. I was talking with Chris Hill, the the now increasingly famous Chris Hill, earlier today in the office, and and, and Chris was talking about um, you know which should I value more Amazon Prime or Amazon web services like which is if you could only have one of the other and I said I would take Amazon Prime because I much fav- favor the company this portion of the company that has 38% of America's households buying as customers than web services where you have, Many it's just a B2B business. Many fewer buyers. So I love companies that have tons of buyers. That's why I liked Amazon very early on as a stock because even though it was just books online at the time, they had such traction for what they were doing. So I think that that's important, Robert. That means you know think about something like Etsy. I mean, Etsy is something where it's kind of borderline. Is it here to stay or not? It came out of nowhere. It it built very organically and impressively quickly. It ipo about a year ago. It's down about 80% from where it ipo It's still about an $800 million company. But these are the kinds of companies where it's kind of caught in the middle. I can't tell. I, didn't rec- I haven't recommended Etsy. I've recommended some other stocks that have gotten uh, crushed, kind of like that. GoPro is an example in, in Rule Breakers. But, you know, I, I think that the Googles, the Netflixes, the Amazons, increasingly finding the ones that are definitely going to be around 10 years makes me comfortable for my buy-to-hold approach.
2: I remember when Netflix was down around 70%. This is a few years ago. Quickster? Yeah, it, was, was, around, quickster? it was around that time. I mean, and bet. I remember asking you, do you have any doubts, any concerns, anything like that? And you were as cool as a cucumber. I mean, you, you had your analytical concerns, but it did not bother you at all, it seemed to me, that it was down so much.
1: Yeah. Well, um, first of all, I'm not really ever cool as a cucumber. That's if You fake I, I, it very well. It. I, I take that as a compliment, but I don't think I deserve it. Um, if I were really cool, I would have been saying, buy, buy, buy. And I usually don't do that. When, when stocks that I have that have lost 50% or more of their value, when that happens, I usually have my head under a pillow and I, I'm, I'm thinking oh. that I got it wrong. But, but the one thing that I will say in my defense is that I tend to just hold. Um, if I still like the company just as much. I was disappointed by the Quickster announcement. The idea, as a frequent Netflix user, that I would have to divide my queue now between the ones that are DVD and the ones that are that that or totally separate user histories, that, that was just a bad decision. It obviously wasn't sustainable. It did create a great buying opportunity for Braver people than me, but we had recommended it, you know, seven years before that, and we were just patiently holding. And our cost today is about two dollars a share. So with the stock at one hundred nine, we've done really well by being incredibly lazy. (laughs) Right.
0: Well, I remember that when when that Quickster thing happened, because the whole office was a buzz, because this is a stock that we love at Motley Fool, and I was surprised at how many. Like, there was a few analysts who were like, "No, Netflix is done. This is it." I was like, "What? How?" Is possible. Like some people were ready to turn tail and abandon Netflix just because of that Quickster thing. Well, it wasn't just our analysts.
1: I mean, there were a lot of people outside Fool HQ who, who th- thought that. And certainly the stock lost um, 75% of its value oh, yeah. in, a, in less than a year. So, I mean, that can happen. And sometimes those don't come back. But when you have, I mean, if you really looked at what was happening with Netflix at the time, they had, I'm making this up slightly, about 25 million members at that point, customers. And during that really difficult time where they were being hammered in the press and rightly so, I think they lost about 800,000 customers net. In other words they went from about 25 to 24.2 at the bottom of what they're doing when sentiment was as bad as it could be. it's a tiny tiny real loss and for nothing. a growing business And if you looked at the future and asked will online streaming be big and who's the leader and who can go global when the Comcast most of these are like you know regulated, domestic entities, there was no competition for what Netflix is doing really globally. So I, I do think obviously we've gotten that one right and it continues to be to be a good pick.
0: Yeah so you talked about not necessarily buying the companies but looking at the, the leaders. most of the people that you've mentioned so far are kind of founder led companies and the founders of companies. What are some of the traits that you look for in these in these founders and in in these entrepreneurs?
1: Yeah, so I mean, certainly one thing that I that I favor is when they do own a fair amount of their stock, um, and usually that's true, especially if they started young, um, which in general um, I I do favor. I like it when uh, my brand new entrepreneur is twenty, uh, as opposed to my age forty nine. Uh, it's not that I don't believe in forty nine year olds like me, but it's it's when somebody is actually if they've gotten a company. to to the public markets, which is an unbelievably hard thing to do. You've gone through a thousand or more really hard decisions. If you've actually, at a very young age, created something of real value, that is a remarkable demonstration, I think, of visionary status. and, And likely, somebody who's going to keep doing that for the long term, whether it's Jeff Bezos some years ago now, or more recently, Mark Zuckerberg, and there are many other. So, when I find a combination of youthfulness and inside ownership, that makes me happy right there. I also like daring. I like it when people um, are taking on the establishment, Um, whether it was Netflix, you know, in a lot of ways, taking on Blockbuster back in the day as a real upstart when Blockbuster was the heavyweight and the favorite, Uh, or then. Subsequently, um, the cable companies, um, you know, or Amazon just taking on the entire retail world. I mean, these. So when there's a when there's an element of daring, there, somebody's willing to be ambitious and take risks. Elon Musk, etc. I hate to use the same names over and over, but these are these are the best entrepreneurs of our time, creating the most value. So and often, what's funny is that um, the world doesn't want to believe them. It's either that Mark Zuckerberg's so young, or it's that um, you know Steve Jobs is hopelessly. Uh, focused on quality and Microsoft is running roughshod over him or um, or Reed Hastings has lost his mind in 2011, you know, or Jeff Bezos uh, they'll never make a profit. Mm-hmm. Those kind like I love it when there's that element of daring combined with extreme skepticism often from the financial press. There are some other factors besides, but there are a few that I look for.
2: The Motley Fool has an annual meeting called Foolapalooza. And you may remember the last one, you and I were talking about Xerox as a company that At one point, was like one of those buy and hold stalwarts, and I checked the price the other day. It's at the exact same price today as it was 30 years ago, and that's a company that uh, was innovative at one time. Actually, created some technologies like the mouse that eventually and gave it away to Apple. Yeah. Um, So the whole idea of at some point there is a company that becomes innovative, but then it changes and almost becomes part of the establishment. Hmm. At what point? Do you look at a company and like, okay, that period of innovation is over, and it might be time to part with a company?
1: Yeah, I just think we all should be actively asking, and you both can see this as well or better than I can. Asking, are they still innovating? Who is innovating in a in a in a leading way? Uh, and often, uh, the companies that were once innovative did not keep it up, or did not keep it up at a more consumer level or a Daring level. So Xerox had Xerox Park, which has given rise to so many wonderful inventions. We talked earlier about AT and T. You know, you will, and AT and T will bring it. Well, actually, AT and T didn't, but AT and T's research and uh, vision did help lots of others. Um, but you know, I don't think it took a genius to see that Xerox wasn't really continuing as a company that you could buy shares in with its own products. Was, was not has not been a leader for quite a long time. Uh, similarly, I feel the same about Walmart, which I do consider to have been very innovative in the 1970s. with Their whole model and everything, lowering prices, uh, widening the choice that you had when you go, went into your store, what to buy, and better prices, brilliant, and going to small towns was very innovative. However, Walmart stopped innovating uh, somewhere around the time that the internet started and Amazon took advantage. So, I, I just ask, who is innovating? And those are the people that I want to be invested in. In some cases, they're the same people that we were innovating 10 years ago, like Google. And in other cases, there are companies that were doing it 10 years ago that aren't anymore. And there are new upstarts that we'll see in 2016 that you and I don't even know yet, that we'll, see that we'll see that thread in them, that it's in their DNA. So that's what I look for.
0: So David, we received a question from a listener, Paul, which we thought you would be particularly well-equipped to answer, probably because he calls you out by name, so
1: <laughs>
0: the question is, I'm nicely positioned for a comfortable retirement that I hope to start in four years. I have a long-term view, in spite of being 56, and I'm a techie at heart, that believes the Internet of Things is going to be a game changer that I should really should participate in." For everyone who's listening, the Internet of Things is the idea of a connected world where your thermostat talks to your chip and your clothes talks to your this. Everything's talking to each other. Uh, Either of you could come up with a better de- <laughs> definition of the Internet of Things, but it's the idea that everything is smart and technology, yay. Okay. Alright, if I carve out 125000 in this in my Roth for this, it would represent less than 10% of my total investments, so I see it as a good managed approach to taking on more risk and reward within my total portfolio. David Gardner seems quite supportive of the Internet of Things movement as a place to grow wealth, and I'm thinking he's likely right, so I should hook my cart. Thoughts?
1: So, um, of course, I, I do like and believe in the idea getting away from phrases sometimes buzzwords like Internet of Things and just saying you know there will be a chip or should be a chip in almost anything that that is consequential um, a chip in uh, you know certainly our iPhone today that's Find My iPhone makes it possible for you and me to do right through to uh, the table that's there in your corporate staff room so that. People who are managing assets, the physical assets on the property, know where the table is. Um, it might sound mundane to uh, to put a chip in a just a table. At the same time, chips are so cheap; it just makes sense so that you know where everything is. So you know less theft. Uh, all kinds of implications for this. Chips inside you and me. I will be somebody who's perfectly willing to take the tiny little. Pinprick incision or whatever to no, no longer have to keep my driver's license. I would be happy. Not everybody would agree with this, but I would be more than happy to take you know my vitals in a tiny little microchip and just have it inserted in. I don't know. Let's go with my elbow, so that you know <laughs> I can just slam down my elbow and and just uh, make my life easier. Uh, chips in everything. Um, so I I think yes, that's the case. However, I don't think you necessarily should. Think in terms of I will allocate 10% of my portfolio to Internet of Things. What I would do is I would say um, that you should be looking at the next 30 years as an investor and asking what are the technologies and companies that will get me there. And I would pick ones that you yourself. Know or feel comfortable with. So you don't have to go out and find which is the next best Internet of Things company when you know that, um, I don't know, this is a little silly, but Amazon is going to be selling tons of things that have chips in them. And so, and you and I are going to be buying and upgrading our tables, perhaps. Um, it's so, so I think that recognizing a trend doesn't mean that you have to latch onto a single company or the one. The chip company. Yeah, I think it's more recognizing the importance of that and making sure that you're invested not in Xerox. But in Amazon, as an example, so I don't, did that answer that good question. Did I hit it at least half?
0: Yeah, I, well, I go for
1: the gentleman C. So if you're telling me that I got a <laughs> C minus, and I'm really satisfied with that.
0: No, no, I think I think one of the issues that it comes to investing in. Growth stocks is kind of the ta- the word that the phrase that people throw I try around. I know you try not to use it. I yeah. know, you, you know, you know.
1: I, that's a hangup um, of mine. But keep going. But the
0: idea that these are stocks that are just going to take off and head into the stratosphere, right. um, we all want those stocks. Like, yes, I want the stocks heading to the stratosphere, but there is a certain amount of risk involved um, with these stocks. And so, I guess for our listeners out there who are thinking. Okay, yeah, you know what? I want to invest in some really good companies that are going to take off. There's no guarantees mm-hmm. um, that they are. So, what I guess, what's some general advice from you for people who are really new investors, who are really new and are thinking, okay, I want to invest in some quote unquote growth stocks?
1: Well, I think your first 15 stocks, and I hope you get from zero if you're at zero today to 15 as fast as possible. We want our cars to go zero to 60 in, I don't know, five seconds. I'd like you to, as an investor, to go from zero to 15. As quickly as possible. And if that means you have $1,500, that means you put $100 in 15 different stocks. And you can do that through things like Share Builder or other accounts you can open today. Uh, so getting diversity, diversification right away. And then make those 15 the 15 that you know best. That's how you should start. Um, and if that means because you love technology or into this, that you start to um, buy those kinds of, kinds of companies, great. If not, That's fine too. So, for most people, if we're talking about motley full answers, we're talking about one answer to you how do I get started investing? Start with stuff that you know and love and make sure that you have a bunch of them, not just a single one. Um, So, from there, I think that if you find that you're missing a lot of the key tech trends, I would say really quickly the internet, virtual reality, and biotech and genomics are three really important trends of our time history will look back and say this was the era. They won't say we were generation X, Y or Z. I don't think. They'll say we were the internet generation. Uh, and that's going to continue to be very vital. So if you find that none of your money is in those three things, I would encourage you to take let's say 10% of your growing portfolio and put it there. And and have fun. If if we're totally wrong, if we bought it, that was only 10% of your portfolio, on the other hand, if you find a company like Netflix or Amazon early on, it'll grow to be a large part of your portfolio in a good way.
2: And I'll highlight something you said when you first started addressing this question um, having the money invested for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, long term horizon, this is someone who is close to retirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people might think, well, I don't have 30s, but, but you do. Uh, this fellow is in his 50s, 30 mm-hmm. years in his 80s. He needs his money to last a long time. So, having a portion of your portfolio that you designate as very long term is smart, and particularly smart that he's using his Roth mm-hmm. from a financial planning perspective. Because if you look at various studies, they show that when you retire, you should tap your taxable account first, then your traditional tax-deferred, and then your Roth. So, if you're going to do this type of investing for something that you don't need for 30 years, a Roth is a great place to do it. Yeah. Good. Very
1: well put.
0: All right, last question before we let you go. What is your completely wildly outrageous, maybe a little bit irresponsible, Isaac Asimov prediction for 50 years from now?
1: So um, I'm I'm really I love motley fool answers. I'm very much hoping nobody's listening to this 50 years from now. This particular one because I don't I, I I earlier talked about how we don't know what's happening in five years at this point. So. It's irresponsible and outrageous. I love that. Thank you. So, you know, I certainly think that some things like uh, uh, massive growth in human longevity, probably aided by technology, is very, very likely to happen. We've already seen longevity increase by a third globally in the last 50 years. Uh, Time magazine two years ago had a cover that said people being born today may live forever. And that was Time Magazine on its cover. So I think there are some shocking things when we think about the implications of long human life, and I think that's going to happen. Um, but you know, just to be a little bit less ambitious than um, than that, I, some combination of first of all, virtual reality is such an important medium. How often are media, new media born in my lifetime? The most prominent thing that was born was the internet. Before that, for some people older than us, um, older than we, <laughs> older than we, it was television. A new medium. And before that, radio. When these things happen, they're really um, plate tectonic. For 30 years or so, there's huge value creation that happens. We are really just at the dawn of virtual reality. It's such a profound and important technology. It will be ubiquitous uh, in 50 years from now. And we'll, we'll be doing everything from replacing our universities, which is another little prediction that I'll make, um, through learning uh, and, and communications and entertainment. I mean, the, the implications are really deep and vast. So I'm just a big bull on virtual reality as the dawn of a new medium. If you're an entrepreneur, I would suggest you look in or go work in that space. If you're just coming out of college right now, I would say find a job at one of those companies. It's the same thing. Plastics. 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 A, little bit, <laughs> a little, little bit of the graduate going Two on words. here, but you know, if somebody had said to me, you know, you're graduating in 1988 from college, which I did, internet. That was the right word then, plastics. And I think virtual reality is the right word now.
0: Awesome. David, I want to thank Although you. Although it's a
1: phrase, admittedly. That's it's fine, not word.
0: Hi <laughs> hy- We'll hyphenate it All for right, this. We'll for for these purposes, we'll go with that. Uh, I really want to thank you for joining us, uh, and also before we go, I want to mention that if you're a listener who like Paul, who wrote in, you're looking to build a portfolio of stocks with advice from David and his team of analysts. His Motley Fool service is called Supernova, and it's about to open up to new members. And you can head to our microsite supernovaradio.fool.com to learn more about how you can invest like David Gardner.
1: I hope you will. And thank you very much. I really so much appreciate it, Alison and Robert. A pleasure. Let's do it again sometime in 2016. Sometime.
2: Absolutely! That would be great, especially if you keep saying nice things about us.
1: do it frequently. (laughs) Truly a pleasure.
0: And finally, a little disclosure. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we mentioned on this show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Hey! That was our bonus episode! I think it went pretty well. It's basically just a really long interview with David Gardner. But if you need even more David Gardner, and believe me, you do, you're going to want to head to SupernovaRadio.Fool.com. There's a ton of great free resources, videos, interviews, stock picks, tons of good stuff. So head over to SupernovaRadio.Fool.com to learn more about how you can invest like David Gardner.